welcome to the Why Tuesday podcast. Thanks for listening. My guest this episode is Charles Terrio. Charles lives in the small rural community of Kedgewick in northern New Brunswick. Charles is a man of many talents. He's an author, conservationist, activist, and twice now he's been a candidate for the New Brunswick Green Party in his writing of Restigouche West. However, it's his efforts as a filmmaker that first drew my attention, and as you'll hear, it's a passion that he picked up early in life. I spoke with Charles while he was here in Fredericton to give a public talk at St. Thomas University. The title of the talk was, Is Our Forest Really Ours? You can find his short documentary film series of the same name at isourforestreallyours.com. That's all one word. In the series, his message is that New Brunswickers should demand action on how our crown forests are managed in the province. Now, instead of doing him the disservice of trying to summarize his efforts, I'll, I'll let his work stand on its own and encourage you to watch a few of his videos. Even if you only have a passing interest in this sort of thing, his call to action is heartfelt and certainly compelling. I also wanted to speak to Charles about his latest book. It's a work of historical fiction entitled Mary of the Woods, and it had just been recently translated from the French title Marie des Bois. So my apologies for the lateness of this episode. There were some obstacles, technical and otherwise. Still learning the audio editing process, and I actually lost and recovered the entirety of the data of this conversation on two different occasions. And in the process, unfortunately, I did lose some of the audio from the first 15 to 20 minutes. So if you notice a difference in the sound quality partway in, then that's why. And needless to say, it's reinforced my practice and belief in having a backup microphone feed when uh, recording. The musical guest this episode is New Brunswick musician Mike Byrne with his song First Mother. Mike is from Tubique First Nation, and I thought that this song fit well with the content of Charles' work. You can find Mike and his work at mikeburn.com, that's M-I-K-E-B-E-R-N, and I'll put some links in the show notes. Okay, so without further ado, here's my conversation with Charles Terrio. Um, I'm a filmmaker by trade, but also by accident in a way. Uh, and it all because uh, I'm an observer. When I was a kid, I was raised in Moncton. I said raised in cement. In cement. In yeah. cement. And I disliked it tremendously. And the best place for me to park myself, behind the house we had a shrub of which I could slide under, okay, sit and look through the leaves and observe. That became my my favorite hobby is to observe, and uh, there wasn't. And, and if I could find a tree to climb, and they'd let me climb it, then I'd sit there and just watch things through the leaves. So I've been I've been sort of training myself to observe. I got into photography quite young. In fact, in high school, on um, eleventh grade. Uh, I found this teacher who actually knew how to do darkroom work, okay. and I had a free class, so we went. I went to the school board and I asked him if he could give us a class and we could be credited for it. They said sure, so we followed a class in photography, but we set it up ourselves. I initiated, but I found others and we took a class in photography. Uh, next year, the National Film Board was opening their production office in Moncton, en français, l'Office national du film. They wanted somebody to start doing a film or anyway, so they came to our high school and obviously they asked us, well, do you want to do a film? I said, sure. So they brought in equipment, brought in people to teach us how to use it, and we did the first film 
out of the National Film Board office out of Moncton. It's called A Simple Day, Sainte Journée. Mm -hmm. But I got hooked. I got hooked by the power of an image, the power of assembly, the power of editing. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I had a terrible time in high school. Worst subject was French and math and physics. <laughs> okay. History I aced. I didn't even take notes. Really, English was super strong, but being being a francophone in Moncton, you learn to speak both languages even before going to school. Sure, because you have to adapt. So I got into filmmaking. Uh, so so my first film, and I got hooked and interested in it. Uh, uh, I found out also I had an, a tremendous ability to listen because uh, in university I didn't want to go but I, I went to satisfy my parents and I took social work. I only stayed for one semester but school of social work when the dean, uh, I met the dean and we chat, became friends and then I became sort of his shoulder to cry on. He had all sorts of problems at home and I'm sitting there, first year student, listening to this thing, and I'm going, oh, wow. From your dean. From the dean. <laughs> so I have this ability to listen. And, and I said, no, this is totally fucked up. And then I turned around and I realized that a lot of the people who were in social work school needed social work help as well. <laughs> and most of the kids who were in psychology kind of had problems as well. So I said, no, this is not for me. So I was able to observe that. Okay, so I did other... <laughs> other things, traveled the country and, and got the chance to find myself in, in the end of mines in Sunbury and, and up uh, in fishing fleets in Newfoundland and, you know, in, in wood camps in British Columbia. And uh, I got to work with workers and sit with workers and chat and listen and learn and found that interesting. Came back to New Brunswick, uh, was able to get into the film industry as a technician and learn that way. All of the ins and outs. Uh, eventually I was approached to do, uh, uh, to, to direct uh, a piece which was kind of political for the New Brunswick Acadian Society. And I had enough experience, I could pull a crew and we did that. And they wanted to increase their membership and that's exactly what happened. And lo and behold, uh, a month later I get a phone call from the Liberal Party. Frank McKenna's Liberal Party, oh, yes. before he got elected, and said, we need to, uh, we'd like to have a New Brunswick company at least bid on the contract to do the elections. We don't. It's never happened. It's always been a Quebec company or an Ontario company. To conduct the elections? To produce the elections. Uh, okay, from A to Z. Right. TV, radio, newsprint, uh, the whole thing. So we'd like at least to have somebody from New Brunswick at the table. Okay, sure. Anyway, I'm dirt poor and I'll try anything, right? And you do that when, you, when you're hungry and you have a family and a child and you, you dare. There's, there's, there, uh, there's nothing to lose. So we get locked up here in Fredericton for five, four days in a hotel room in the, uh, up at the Fredericton Inn. And we meet these people for uh, three days, all of the politicians, what their aspirations are. And Frank, Frank isn't elected yet, right? But we meet all the key players and they talk to us, give us secrets. 
then we have a day to go back and think our campaign, and the next day present it. Now, there's three companies, the company from Toronto, a company from Montreal, and myself. You're all competing together for yes, this? Yes, for, this, for, the, for the, the contract to do the election campaign. There's 17 people from Toronto, there's six people from Montreal, and then there's myself. Now, the group from Toronto, you've got graphic artists, musicians, composers, writers, uh, you know, uh, company execs, etc. Similar but smaller with uh, the Quebec group, Montreal group, and myself. So I listen and take notes and listen and take notes. And of course, I don't have these people's ability to do a presentation. Uh, so I wind up with, uh, we take pull straws, and I'm the last one presenting. So I thought, great, okay. So the first group presents itself, and uh, from Montreal, very slick, you know, and they, they, they're ad sellers and they know how to push. And they, okay. Second group from Toronto, they have all the graphics made out already, all the color. They, they spent a lot of money making sure that they have something to present. Mm -hmm. I come up with a flip chart. And I said, here's my campaign. Flip the first page, nothing on it. But I have a marker. And I said, this is the campaign. And then I draw out very simply what it is like to talk to New Brunswickers. How to pull that heartstring. Of course, I was making it up as it was going along. But I kept them focused. Every time I turned the page, kept drawing, slogans. I mastered the ability to sort of keep them captured. Mm -hmm. Finish. That's my presentation. They stand up and clap. The, the liberals were there. I'm surprised you with that. <laughs> so, I okay. It's time to go have a pee. I go have a pee. Not long after, the president of the company from Toronto comes up, has a pee, and tries to convince me that, you know, I, we could. They'll handle that part, the the business sales and everything else part. I'll just handle the creative and blah blah blah. I had told them basically that if we could produce a campaign out of New Brunswick on the, the slogan made in New Brunswickers by New Brunswick, or sorry, made for New Brunswick by New Brunswickers, that had never been done. But that was the catchphrase. Uh, so we did the campaign, TV, radio, newsprint, the whole thing. And there's a logic when you communicate, you know. New Brunswickers basically are illiterate. Not all are illiterate, but the high degree of illiteracy. But they can open a newspaper and read Montreal 4, Toronto 2, right? Look at pictures and the price on it. So they, they, they buy the newspaper so they can look at the pictures and get information from it. So I, as far as newspaper-wise, it says, use a big picture. A little bit of words, big picture, and the logo on it. Because most people can read into it. If you put too many words, they won't read it, they won't understand it. And secondly, those, those who do read a lot tend to be already decided voters. Sure. You want to go after the undecided voters. So you have to cater to them. So we did that. We tried to decide, uh, we did some surveys and we found out that the undecided voters in New Brunswick before an election is always huge and they're always basically women. So you design your campaign, you target market to women mm -hmm. between the age of 28 and 54. 
Anything older than that, they usually tend to vote like their husbands, right? Anything younger than that, they, if, they, they tend to vote towards uh, the left. But the undecided, those who are unsure, those who have kids, those who the husbands aren't working, tend to be women. So we designed a whole campaign for that. We run the campaign and we win every right. Clean sweep. Clean sweep. Great. Hey, I get a job. I don't just get a job. I, uh, I answer to the premier's office, uh, but I'm more like I get highly paid to sit, on, sit in on meetings. Okay, you go in and you do a two-hour meeting and you can charge them $350, okay, and then you do it. And that was how many years ago? You know, 30 years? That's, 30, 30 years ago. Yeah. Uh, wow. But I'm unhappy. I'm unhappy because I'm not a politician. I'm a creative person. Okay. And then I got, but at least I got to observe, just like sitting in the tree under the bush and watching things. I got to be part of an inner circle. I mean, I go to Frank McKenna's kids' birthdays, you know, and, and I go to uh, cab after cabinet meetings. Uh, they'd all wind up at Senator John Bryden's house, you know, to drink, and and people would show up. I called them vultures who had interests, and I just sit there and observe and try to understand how politics was done in New Brunswick. Uh, so it, it, it was like I felt like the kid under the bush again, you know, just watching things evolve, trying to understand how things work. Uh, but I was unhappy because I wasn't liking what I was seeing. And also, uh, I had my wife at the time was quite ill. She suffered from a, a mental disorder, bipolar mood disorder. Um, and was about to have another uh, episode. And it was very difficult to try to live both at the same time. And you lived where at the time, Moncton? We lived in Fredericton. Oh, you did? Okay. Moved to Fredericton, but we moved to Bathurst. Because uh -huh. I would much rather take care of my wife and my child than, than uh, um, you know, live, live the life in, of politics here that I didn't quite like and understand. Uh, so uh, I moved uh, to Bathurst area and uh, learned, uh, sort of forced myself to learn how to deal with the illness because it's not easy. There was nothing written about bipolar mood disorder that was designed for the everyday person. Mm -hmm. Everything that was written was written in a very professional language. And unless you have a degree in psychology or medicine, or you, you don't understand what you're reading. Uh, so once back in Bathurst, and once she went through her episode, and, and that was an incredible episode that, that uh, one day I guess I'll explain, but it took her all over Quebec in a car, losing her and finding her again. And, oh. and, and it, it, incredible. Anyway, uh, I was able to obtain work, but I focused on since there was nothing written about two people about the illness, I set out writing a book on bipolar mood disorder. It's okay. called On an Even Keel, Understanding Bipolar Mood Disorder. And uh, it took me three years to write. And I even hired a psychologist to translate some of the languages, some of the articles that I had that I couldn't understand. And um, <coughs> it was designed I actually wrote the book so for my parents and her parents 
so they could figure out what we were going through and that they could perhaps find a way to help us rather than always be negative and it just added compounded the problem sure so they kept blaming me because I didn't have a full-time job or steady job why she was ill and I kept telling them no it's because I have this flexibility that I can stay with her and help her right. because that's needed um, so when and this is interesting I hadn't I took the I took the book in French uh, to a publisher here in New Brunswick which was uh, Les Editions d'Acati and they didn't want it weren't interested they said no we don't think there's much interest in it okay and I hate being told no you can't do it it's, it's one of my pet peeves uh, so I turn around and I write it in English I translate everything and write it in English really? I'm not even I haven't published it I don't have money I don't have money to be able to print it up okay but I have it in written form and revised by psychiatrists and psychiatric nurses and everything else and they put their A-OK on it so the local newspaper in Bathurst writes up an article that I've written a book, that um, Leah and I have written a book. And somehow that article finds its way on uh, a researcher in Toronto who researches for the show called Vicky, Ga Vicky Gabbro. Mm -hmm. Sure. Okay, and that was a huge show. So they contact me and they say, would you mind? I say, it's not even printed up yet. What, could you send us a copy of what you have? Okay. So I send them a copy. Three days later, we get a phone call. We'd like to do an interview live with you and your wife, sure. Uh, but we'll take two hours. They usually had small segments, right? Six minutes, ten minutes. Two hours. Okay, so we go to Moncton, do a two-hour live interview with Vicky Gabriel. The mailbox was full every day for about two months. Request wanting to know. It was just bags full. Incredible. There was a need for organized information. And the way that, sh that Leah and I were able to explain it, right away connected all over the, the country. Uh, so that was quite a surprise. Um, and it, it's, I have this ability to observe, but I have this ability also to sort of condense things in understandable way. So uh, that brought us some good funds, and that helped. <laughs> pay the bills um, and uh, was able tremendously to get my wife as well organized and we created a drop-in center uh, in the Bathurst region and that was run totally by the people themselves and that model became a model that was copied all over New Brunswick they had 26 of them in that model a sort of self-run self-help group uh, so that was the, the mental health experience, and that's, that's fine. But luckily enough, I was—I I got a name into making people would contact me, government agencies or companies. It would say, Charles, we need a video, English and French, on this subject. Here's the uh, here are the five binders. We need ten minutes. <laughs> okay. Okay. So it, it was about. I, and great, it was a way to make a living. And so I, I dive in and take all in that I could and then find a way to condense it into understandable 10 minutes. I got pretty good at it. And the fact that it was bilingual, that I could do it both in English and French, 
all by myself made it that uh, I had a good career that way. I got involved in some uh, productions for television, documentaries. I did a whole series. And it was interesting, uh, as a cameraman and director and editor, it's like a one-man band, right? It's a guerrilla show. I had a sound man with me. But it was guerrilla TV. And I, I get a series where I do uh, 21 shows on artists all over Canada and, or on communities. And uh, I had one series called Petite Vue de Chez Nous, Little Films from Home, where I go into unknown Acadian communities. And I could be just in, in, in Gardner, Massachusetts, as, as in Newfoundland, as in, okay. And, uh, and had basically a blank, blank card to come out with a little half hour movie for Radio Canada. Oh, wow. So uh, I got introduced to a lot of the communities, Acadian, little hidden communities that nobody knew anything about. And that brought me to Kedgewick. And I'd done 18 uh, of those shows. Um, so when I got to Kedrick, I discovered a whole Acadia that I knew nothing about. How so? Well, uh, I, uh, I, I know a lot about Acadian history. It's, it's one of my, my uh, hobbies. So the Acadia the sea, right? Mm -hmm. Acadia the land. Then there's the Acadia of... Uh, um, the forest, the Edmonston area, and all this, okay. But Kedgewick, I think, are the last vestiges of French-speaking Appalachia. It's the Appalachian people, the river people, the mountain people, the love of nature. Uh, I had never encountered that before in Acadia, you know. I had been to every corner of Acadia that you can imagine, from Newfoundland to Nova Scotia to Gardner, Massachusetts, the, you know, it's a dysphoria. I have never been to Louisiana, but I spend, tend to be there someday. But it's Appalachia, and it's this love these people have for uh, uh, the nature, and the, the hunting, and the fishing, and the, and the, and the simpleness of knives, and, and the cooperation. And, and also, because it's almost totally Francophone, there's very little English-speaking people in it's amazing. People come up to me with a letter. They got an English letter. And they want to know what it means. You know, so we still have that in New Brunswick. Mm -hmm. Isolated communities. Who, as there are English isolated communities where no one speaks French, it's the same thing. We still have that in New Brunswick. And what I learned when I got to Kedgewick, because it's, it's one of the last completely forest-dependent communities in New Brunswick. Sure. Um, I was under the impression that everything was hunky-dory uh, in the forest industry, that it supplied a tremendous amount of economy to the province. It, it was prior to me discovering what I did, that it was essentially the, the, the foundation of which New Brunswick economy was built on. That's my impression, that everything went well. Um, and that's when I discovered something totally different. Uh, I met this young man who uh, uh, had attempted suicide, and he was 26 years old, three kids. I asked him, why? Why don't you do that? Why don't you try to kill yourself? I'm in debt. Yeah, I said, everybody's in debt. No, no, I'm a million dollars in debt, and I was owning a machine, 
was working 80 hours a week and um, uh, the Irving company that I had contracts with was squeezing me, squeezing me, squeezing me. I'm about, my wife left me because I'm no longer home and I'm working too hard and I'm about to lose my house and I'm about to, you know, it's, everything's signed in with that. I said, what do you mean you're a million dollars in that? It's, 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 you mean the machine, if you lose the machine? No, 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 I'm, I'm completely signed in. Wow, he says everyone's like that. What? Everyone is caught in the throat. Every machine owner is caught in the throat. I said, how is it possible? He says, it's because if you want to work in the forestry, it's no longer the companies who buy the machines, it's the people who buy the machines. Right. And they're co-signed by the company. Under contract. Under contract. They're co-signed by the company. And the company has a right to look into your account to see how much you have left to pay. And when you're getting close to having paid off your machine and you can actually see profit down the road, you know, where you're, you're making more than $40,000 a year working 80 hours a week because you can see the profit coming in once your machine's paid off, then they want you to buy another machine. What's and I if you refuse, then they determine where you go cut your wood. Uh. So they'll send you somewhere where it's really not profitable really not profitable or where your machine breaks down often right right or then and then where the bank starts knocking what's going on then i found out about the private woodlot owners in 1982 the government determined we're not very good at running our forests the provincial government years that you were yes to. provincial government so what we're going to do is we're going to privatize the management of it we divide our public forest, which is 50% of all the forests in New Brunswick. You know, 30% then belongs to um, private woodlot owners. 19% belongs to uh, the companies, and 2% belongs to the federal government. But 50% belongs to the public, our forest. We're not very good at managing it, so what we're gonna do is we're gonna divide it in 10, and then we're gonna hand over management of it to the private companies and they'll manage it for us and they'll make profit for us and I'm sure that everybody will find now the private woodlot owners were really pissed off because saying that well that's not fair because they're going to have access to private uh, to crown forest before having no 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 in 1982 they said no we're going to put in the law that says the companies have to buy the AAC meaning annual allowable cut of the forest from the private woodlot owners before mm -hmm. having access to the crown forest. Right. Okay, so that way, if you want to sell your wood, you've got a buyer guarantee. Now, the AAC is a standard that was set long ago that they knew exactly how much was in the wood basket in New Brunswick. And if you wanted to keep the forest lively and vibrant, you couldn't cut more than they had determined. So annual allowable cut. So consider it to be a, a sustainable rate of, of harvesting. Of harvesting, exactly. So the AAC, and it had been studied and, okay. Now, that was in 1982. But the natural resource minister at the time was called Bud Bird. Bud Bird. Okay. From here in Fredericton. Here in Fredericton. Now, a few months after that law was passed, and all of the private woodland owners were pissed off, but main public didn't understand what was going on, right? And the newspapers, the Irving-owned newspapers certainly didn't cover it. 
So the law passes, and a few months later, Bud Bird becomes one of the directors of Fraser Papers. Okay? Now, 10 years after that, like Frank McKenna's in power now, Frank McKenna changes the law where the companies no longer have to buy from the private woodlot owners to have access to the Crown Forest. Okay? That impoverished New Brunswick, all of northern New Brunswick. Okay? Before, the price negotiated with the private woodlot owners, and that's by, with the, the federation of the private woodlot owners, the price negotiated for the wood, uh, then the companies had to pay that price when they harvested Crown Forest. Okay. Now, they didn't have to. So they negotiated with the province for a price. Mm -hmm. And then if they wanted, if, if private woodlot owners wanted to sell their wood, they had no choice but to accommodate to that price. So now you have government competing with private woodlot owners. A race to the bottom. A race to the bottom. When I found that out, I said, my God, what's going on? I have, I got to try to do something. You know, my boy scout nature, right? <laughs> so um, uh, I said, uh, listen, I'm a filmmaker, uh, and I, I, I would like to raise awareness and tell people that we're actually being robbed. We are being robbed. Uh, we're being impoverished, and it's a, a collusion with province, the province and the large forest producers here. So I started my blog, which is is our forest really ours? Right. I did a whole series. I did 28 episodes. And I realized as they were being put out there on social media, the I was getting more and more attention. More and more attention. And then I'd be getting a phone call from a, a former deputy minister, retired. He says, I like what you're doing. Um, you know, I'd, I'd like to contribute. Okay. So I get a phone call, I, I go see the guy. You know, he used to be former Deputy Minister of Natural Resources. Retired, has nothing to fear, has something to say, he always had a chip on his shoulder. So I was getting phone calls and contacts from these people who wanted to contribute because they were, they agreed that we're being screwed here, big time. We're being impoverished, we're being kept poor. And basically, it's a corporate capture. Now that word I got from, uh, who is now a friend, but from a fellow who is a, an international expert in corruption. Okay, Don Bowser. Oh yes. Okay, Don, who at the time was in Ukraine, but he's worked in Vietnam and also so many Asian countries and and um, uh, North Asian countries, and uh, fighting corruption, setting up laws. But he's originally from New Brunswick. He hadn't been in New Brunswick in 20 years, and when he finally came back to New Brunswick, he looked at it and said, holy shit, what's going on? I mean, this is like a third world country. We're, we're a captured state. So he contacted me, he says, I'd like to participate through your blog. And that's where really doors started opening. That's, that's where I got, I, I kind of understood a better picture of what was going on. Not a micro, but a macro picture of what was going on. And that's exactly it we're being exploited for our resources. And uh, uh, I hadn't understood it when I was in the McKenna background, but I, I realize now I received information back then 
I didn't quite understand it, but uh, I understand it better now. You have, um, the, you have the context to put it into. Exactly. I didn't have and, it at the time. And yeah. Bowser gave you the, the list of six yeah, yeah. conditions. Six, six conditions uh, to prove that we're in a captured state. In, in, okay. um, I don't have them all at hand, but the first thing is um, you control resource. Okay. Then you control production. Then you control information, media, okay? And then you control governance, laws. And then you scare the people by telling them, by telling them, give us what we want or the jobs go away. That's the standard approach, those are five, I forget what the sixth is. And New Brunswick fits that so well. But this is how Don Bowser defines a captured state in the countries he's in and he fights with.
slowly fading away Oh mother I hear your heartbeat slowly fading away So something interesting happened, I recall now, when I was with the McKenna Group. And by the way, I did, I did Frank's election twice, the first one. Um, but I got hired to do the third campaign. They approached me uh, to do the third campaign, and I said, well, don't you guys have it done already? Yes, we have. We don't like it. <laughs> so you've... You've hired people to produce it, they've done the TV as, they've done the newsprint, everything, and you don't like it. Well, we'd like you to come and look at it. I look at the whole campaign, they say, what do you think? I said, hey, listen, it's great for selling tomato soup, but it won't work in your browser. Well, can you come up with something? Okay, I, maybe. Well, could you try, come back to us in like four days? In four days? For full campaign. I said, that quick? He says, yeah, well, we expect to launch the campaign in three weeks, but you're going to have to work with the people we sign contracts with. I'll see what I can do. And on, I was, I was, on a Monday morning, I was scheduled to go back and talk to the, present to um, uh, Frank and John. And, and it was Monday, fun, it was Sunday night, and I still hadn't come up with a campaign. Nothing. So it's like two in the morning, I can't sleep, and my wife sleeping next to me starts talking in her sleep. Now, she uh, bipolar, but she was always heavily medicated, okay, being a chronic sufferer, and often spoke in her sleep, often. So, uh, and I, I'd speak, she never remembers it, but I'd speak to her. So she starts laughing and laughing, and I say, what's cool? What are you laughing about? She laughs and she says, well, it, uh, the best part about the Roseanne show, and it was the most popular show at the time, is those little two minutes at the end, you know, when they screw up, when they show the bloopers, and then she goes back to sleep. And I go, there's the ad. <laughs> there's the TV ad. So I, I, I don't go back to sleep. I just designed a whole campaign right there, laid down. TV ads are... Well, 30 second ad, 20 seconds of your straight political talk, and then 10 seconds of bloopers. 
that leaves you with a smile. Because in politics, any, any ad, if you leave someone with a smile, it's 50% of the game, right? So I based the whole campaign on that. I show up to Fredericton, and I have, I have nothing. I just draw out what I'm doing. Great, we love it. Okay. <laughs> then put out the campaign. Boom. We never received back except one. That scared me because that's when I understood that advertising works. I hadn't realized it before that advertising works. I had never looked at advertising much before. I had always followed my heart. Then I started looking advertising on TV, advertising everywhere, and that's when I, I, I got quite an education. That's when I stopped doing it. Okay. Did it make you have second thoughts about the, the success that you generated? Uh, not at the time, because I didn't, I didn't understand <coughs> how large the collusion was. I didn't understand at the time how impoverished we're being kept. You know, uh, I do now. Second thoughts about if had I known, and and it's always hindsight, you know. But had I known what what happened, because McKenna's political style was very micromanagement. All of his ministers were just figureheads, and ministers were just like today. Our ministers and uh, past ministers uh, are just figureheads. They have no control over the department. As, as Donald Savoie says, it's governing from the center. It's governing from the center, exactly. And because the system is so ingrained with the McKenna style of governing, naming the deputy ministers and having total control out of the premier's office, even though they changed governance, no one had enough vision to change it. They just step in and go, oh, I guess this is how things are done. Except that model. Except that model. But that model has brought us here. And that model was really based on privatization, helping the corporate agenda, helping the corporate capture take hold. That's what happened when you privatized the management of our largest resource. Right. Now you have the liberals, past liberals, who 10 years ago started privatizing our largest expense. Our largest expense is healthcare. Now they found a model to privatize our largest expense. Started with the ambulances, right? Mm -hmm. Ambulance services used to be all regional, all independent. Although they weren't they didn't quite have the same qualifications as they have now, they were all efficient, all worked, everything was fine. Now we have an ambulance and that, that but what they did is they centralized it took over, centralized it, and now they've privatized it. And the service we're getting, certainly in our, in our, our northern part of New Brunswick, is, is terrible. You know, we know. So they've centralized uh, extramural care. Now they've privatized that. So that's what's been happening. Now they're going, the, the, the uh, taking care of the elderly is the same thing. Okay, they're building, they're give, signing these con secret song contracts with Shannex to build so many uh, elderly care homes, right? But it's all secret. So that style of governance can only happen when you've, you've got centralization in place and people decide, you know, how to sort of shave things off. Now, I've been, my blog on the forestry has been to try to raise awareness to tell people, listen, we're being screwed here. It's a great resource giveaway, okay? And, um, Yes, we have. Yes, it produces a lot of money, but not for the province. And for the last ten years, province of New Brunswick has been uh, at a loss in the forestry 
where last year I think it was thirteen million dollars that we had to, that we paid that we lost. So we're actually paying the companies to take the wood away. When you say when you say we lost, you mean we're not making any money on the, forestry. The stumpage that's collected from yeah, the we're not. Companies. When you look at the cost involved, look cost involved, um, the revenues and the expenses. Okay, we used to make quite a lot of revenue. Why aren't we now? It's not because the price of the wood has crashed. Because it's not, it has been a constant steady. But somehow we're just not charging enough. We should. So we're. I, I wasn't. Government. I wasn't aware of that. Do yeah. you think most New Brunswickers are aware of that? No, oh. that. But they, they're getting aware. We're, I'm working hard to raise that awareness. But we're not making any money on forestry. People are saying, well, they're creating jobs, so we're making money off the taxes that we charge the people who are working. But we're still at a loss. Okay. So if we're at a loss, we have to change our system. Yeah. We've had world experts, uh, forestry, finance, economics experts, come in. Uh, what's his name? John Roberts. And I did one of the blogs on that. Mm -hmm. And province hired him to say, tell us what to do to turn this thing around. And he said out flatly, fine, get rid of your Crown Forest Act. Get rid of the, the private companies who are managing your forest. They're managing it for themselves. Right. Not for the people in New Brunswick. And here are the proof. And he put out the numbers and he said, here are the proofs. Get okay. rid of it. And it got Quiet down, put away. Oh, thank you very much. Okay, and that was ten years ago, and it's gone worse and worse. Now we've lost really control over the management. We have to retake that because it is. But as as I said, they privatized the management of that. Now they're privatizing uh, our largest expense, which is healthcare, and it's it's healthcare for profit now. So they're going to keep, and that's an American style approach. So we have to yeah. stop that right away. And I've done enough work. I shouldn't say I've done enough, never enough work, but I'm trying to raise as much awareness as possible. But I find that now that, for instance, um, the conservative uh, leader, 10 days before the end of this last election, started saying, no, we're going to revise the Crown Forest Act. I think it's time for us to do that. We have to look into it. That means that he realizes that there are enough people are aware that it's affecting how they're going to vote. So that's come a long way. How the wind's blowing. Yeah. Now what I want to get involved in is we have to decentralize, not cent decentralize our governance, because we're about to hit a wall here, and it's 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 not it the cause is human, but it, it's about the warming of the planet, and we have to give the tools back to our communities so they can better prepare. We, and we're talking about food security. You know, just think of the fact that right now, if there'd be a terrorist attack and a, a field, a poison would be spread all over a lettuce field in California, and somehow it made its way to Canada. Okay. They closed that Canadian-US border for food overnight. It'd be closed for a month. Mm -hmm. So we've got two days' worth of food in our inventory, each, <coughs> each community, in their, uh, their grocery stores. What then? Okay. We've, we've relegated the responsibility to feed ourselves to industry, who does it as cheap as they can out of Mexico and wherever. So we're left quite insecure, and we need to regain that. Now, if, if I were in government and they were saying, well, we'll give so many millions of dollars to this company to create 35 jobs, okay, doing what? The, the 
building with something. I'd rather give those millions of dollars to the farmers and not just to grow potatoes, but to grow produce okay, in our communities. And those 35 jobs would quickly be created. And we have to, we have to retool ourselves. We have to keep thinking now of, of that, of food, of fish, of, of finding efficient ways that we can have that security. There is, does seem to be, and maybe I'm misreading it, but there does seem to be a bit of a renaissance in yeah. young people getting back into agriculture and, and growing right. food. They're, they're pulling against gravity in a lot of cases. What, what do you, I mean, you, you ran for office in the last election and the one before, if I'm mm -hmm. not mistaken. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what sort of concrete things would you like to see uh, our provincial government or any provincial government uh, do to make that sort of thing easier for young people, or, or any age really, to, to get into small-scale agriculture? Oh, simple, decentralize. Decentralize. Give your communities the authority to, to, to guide themselves. Give them the funds to be able to ensure that food security. Believe you me, when that happens, all the fallow fields we have all over the place, you know, all the empty buildings that could serve uh, to grow food and fish and everything else, that would be transformed. What does that look like specifically, Charles? Like you, you say, give the authority back to our communities. How, how do you envision that? being, uh, how do you envision that in, in, a, in a real sense for people who are in these communities? Well, um, one of the things that happened when you centralize is you take away something uh, that was there before, and that's you take away community involvement, okay? Our hospital in Saint-Quentin has a manager two days a week, but it used to have uh, a full committee, run itself, decided its budget, had community involvement. Now they've taken 15 services away in the last 10 years. From Saint-Quentin. From Saint-Quentin. Mm -hmm. Which now people have to, last year there were 11,000 uh, visits out of Saint-Quentin into the hospital in Edmonston or in Camelton to get a service. 11,000. And that's each an hour, one's an hour, the other's an hour and a quarter away. Okay, and we're talking, we're talking things like uh, uh, just dialysis. dialysis, okay, and all sorts of all colonoscopy. These are things that you're ill and you have to drive an hour and a quarter to get to your meeting, and then you have to dedicate your whole day. These are other things where you, you don't just take an hour yeah. or two off from work to do a go a service. You have to take your whole day off. To go get a service where before. So what I'm saying is that you re-give what you've taken away in regarding hospitals, for instance, okay, and then regarding um, how your, your schools, the same thing. Each community will determine what they need their students to learn to better support. For instance, in our region, if we brought in all the, the we need workers, we need uh, um, you know, technicians, uh, um, electricians, uh, we need people who understand the earth, we need people who understand how to grow things because we have all this land available around us. We need to get that back in, okay? So I think we, we give the communities that sort of uh, control again. We think community involvement, you can't, it has incredible value, but when you centralize, that goes away. 
we have to get that back in because mm -hmm. those are the tools we need to better prepare for what's coming down the pike. And we don't know what's coming down the pike, but at least if we can better be prepared for it. To adapt. To adapt, to adapt. exactly. Just, uh, I'll give you an example. In one of my blogs, I took a, a, the mill in Ketwick, which uh, employs 57 people, uh, earned by the Irvings, owned by the Irvings. Mm -hmm, yeah. And then the other one is in uh, Sacré-Cœur in okay. Quebec, along the Saguenay. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. They use the same amount of wood. They process the same amount of wood. But the mill there is owned by the workers. In, in Quebec. In Quebec, in Sacré-Cœur, okay. Uh, they use the same amount of work. This one's 57 jobs, this one over 700 jobs. 700? And they own the 700. mill. 700? Yeah, and process the same amount of wood, okay. They add value. They don't just ship it to the States. They add derivative value. Like they add value, and I did a blog on that. And the fellow who put this mill together in Quebec, when the mill, when, when Fraser's closed down in Kedgwick, he showed up and tried to convince the community to buy the mill. Okay. It would be a competitor to him, would it not? No, no, but, 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 but he was telling the people, this is the model, but the unions wouldn't go along with it. The unions said, no, no, we need a big player to, 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 to run the One mill. Guy, okay. <laughs> so, so he went to Sakeka. The mill was dead for 10 years, convinced them, and now it's community sunness, right? So imagine now if each forest community in New Brunswick, and there are, actually you said to the, 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 you said the forest has to be used to benefit the community that lives within it, okay? So find a way to benefit because it's not just there's not just fiber in a forest there's so much more but right now we're just it's being clear-cut but there's a way to gather from and then eat that forest should benefit the community should render it so that's a it's a different way of thinking but it's it's thinking beyond the corporate control mm. it's thinking that we have enough intelligence we have enough ability we have enough compassion between ourselves but if we enhance our community involvement, we'll get there. It's by taking that community involvement away, right, that then they can, they, they, they manipulate us, but now let's get that compassion back in. I'm convinced that we can become um, an interesting place for people wanting to move here. So you've, you've, long, been a, you've long been a critic of, of uh, the government's uh, approach to natural resource management. Yes. And uh, in the hollowing out of for rural communities, yes. what what do you think we need to do in the in the medium and long term, and maybe we don't have so long to do it, to bring people back who have gone away and maybe w who would like to be here, mm -hmm. who would like to make a life here, mm -hmm. but just don't see the just don't see the ability to sustain a family and a future here. What, what do you think we need to do to try to retain the people we have and, and bring back the folks who have the skills and have the smarts to, okay. to make a life here? Listen, I think we have to govern like a household. Right now we're governing like a company, a corporation. Okay. In the last election, uh, Brian Gallant kept talking about investing, investing. We're investing in our young, we're investing in the old, we're investing, we're invest that's, that's government, that's business talk. Right. And, and uh, 
uh, Higgs kept repeating, the people in New Brunswick are our clients. Okay, we're the business, you guys are our clients. He kept repeating it. So it's that kind of corporate attitude that's, that's sort of insidious in all our governance. We have to govern uh, like it's a household, uh, as if it's a, almost a matriarchal society. We have to make sure that everybody's on an equal footing. We have to make sure that we can provide where it needs to be provided. We need that everybody has the opportunity to grow and to prosper, if that's the case, but not go beyond abuse. Right? Uh, it's like being a, a good old Acadian or Italian grandmother, you know, who rules the roost and slaps you by the side of the head because you're not, you're not providing what you're supposed to be providing. But I think we have to, we have to run like that. And that, that takes compassion, uh, compassion in our governance. That takes honesty. I think we have to build in rules that is totally transparent. I think we have to be totally transparent. It's people's money, so we have to be really transparent with all of it, all the time. No secrets. If you want a deal with the government and you want to kept it secret, well, go away. You won't have one. It's that simple. You know? And that's the kind of rigid attitude that we have to have with corporations. I think if you make profit from our resources, then you, you pay for the value of that profit, uh, that, that resource. You have to pay. Otherwise, go away. There are other people lined up who want it. We are wealthy here, but we have to put in the managers, uh, the politicians who, who manage our wealth here, that they do it for the people and not for their future prospects. And I think that's what we need to do. And it won't happen overnight, but if we can at least keep educating people about how it needs to get done, how important it is. But I think people are waking up. So, so th th there's much we can do to change. And I think the first way we do it is, is try to do it by example. I think the first thing we have to try to do is, is get communities involved without any government implication, a provincial government implication, but allow them to expand, allow them to try. I think it, it, it's a, this approach of control, central control, is certainly outdated and is certainly harming us in being able to adapt to what's, to what's coming along. Let me, I'll uh, try to be <laughs> as brief as I can. I did okay. want you to talk a little bit about, I want to put a plug in for your, for your book. Okay. Um, can you Maybe for the listeners, kind of don't give too many spoilers, of course, uh, yeah. Yeah. but uh, give uh, uh, an overview, maybe, of, of the, what the story is about. There's a relationship, there's a history. We lived together, sorry, in New Brunswick and in Atlantic Canada, Francophones, Anglophones, Natives. But nobody really knows our common history. And if we understood our common history and the, 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 the reasons behind people's thinking, maybe we could learn to understand each other better today. So I wanted to write a story about that. And I also wanted to write a story that's never been told. See, I'm an Acadian, Acadian descent, on my father's side, my mother's side, from the early 1600s, okay? Now, on my father's side, they had been captured and sent, uh, expulsed to wars, and <coughs> the end of wars in North Carolina and South Carolina. You see those, those were the prisons. You, you send them, you, you put guards up, but you send them at the end of wars. And you know that they're not gonna jump in the ocean. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, so 
uh, and then some of them went to Louisiana, and some of them actually walked back all the way back um, to Nova Scotia. But on my mother's side, the Melanson side, they hid in the woods for nine years with the Micmac. Nine years. Nine years. And that story has never been told of, of the Acadians who managed to hide with the Micmacs. Well, that's that story. But also, I wanted, during that time, there was a bounty on the Micmacs. Governor Cornwallis, who of late has been quite controversial, uh, because he had placed a bounty and would pay 10 guineas, that's 10 gold coins, for each scalp. Each Mi'kmaq scalp. Each Mi'kmaq scalp. And I got a phone call from uh, a woman who had just been to the uh, uh, museum in Washington. Uh, I forget the name of the museum. Smithsonian? Yes. And they have a collection of Mi'kmaq skulls there. And both ears are attached. And I said, why? And she said, she read the paper, and it said because the first year, they would sculpt two portions of the sculpt and get paid twice the money, and they found out. So now they, they demanded to see both ears on the sculpt. So I wanted to write a story that involved the bounties about the Micmacs and the Acadians hiding and the troubles at the time. And it's all through the eyes of a 10-year-old girl. Marie, Marie, Marie Arsenault, who they help and befriend a family, uh, an English family, who's been put on an old Acadian place uh, as bait. As bait. As bait. Because they used to live on a um, quarantine island in the Boston Bay. It's all true. And uh, th they wanted to clear the island, so they took the, um, they took the quarantine residents. They said, form families, we'll give you territory in Nova Scotia. And they placed them on old Acadian lands, house included, the whole thing. And then the, the headhunters would roam around there because they knew that the Micmacs would probably attack them. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Probably read it. <laughs> I, I'm looking very much uh, forward yeah. to reading it. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, now, a lot of it is true, and something, you know, it, it's historically it's, it stands. It, it stands up. I, I think you'll find it interesting. I'm very much looking forward to reading yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Charles Terrio, thank you very much for agreeing to appear on the Y2 Stay podcast. It's been well, a pleasure. My pleasure. It's been a true pleasure. Oh, great. Thank you. Yeah. So, that was my conversation with Charles Terrio. You probably noticed another voice in the background in our conversation as well, and that was his friend and traveling companion for the day, Maurice Violette. You can find Charles' video series at isourforestreallyours.com, and uh, failing that, he also has a channel on the internet video platform site Vimeo. Also, if you're interested in Charles' latest book, Mary of the Woods, or its original French title, Marie des Bois, probably the best way to get in touch with Charles is uh, via Facebook. Thanks again to Mike Byrne for letting us use his music in the musical interlude. Please go to the show notes to get links for Mike and Charles' work. Lastly, if you enjoyed the show, please like and share it on social media, or rate and review it on iTunes or Podbean. It seems cliche, but it really does help people find the show and expand our audience. So thanks for listening, and until next time, stay well and keep finding reasons why to stay. Finally found the good life, never gonna put it down